0: On this episode of Psalm Sketches, we'll be looking at Psalm 29, a psalm that extols God's work and his power as evidenced in creation, and which encourages the people of God to echo the praise the creation brings to the Father. But first, a musical reflection out of the psalm. <laughs>
1: The earth sings, Lord.
0: Psalm 29 is a a psalm, like many other psalms, which deals with uh, uh, matters of creation. Uh, David, much like Aristotle and like Aquinas, looked for evidence of God in creation and uh, saw God's fingerprints all over the earth that he inhabited. I'd like to begin by reading Psalm uh, 29 and then kind of break it down a little bit and talk about how I think it can inspire and challenge us today as we seek to apply uh, what we hear and what we meditate on in these uh, beautiful Hebrew Psalms. Psalm 29 in the ESV says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Most of the Psalm makes references to God's power over and in creation. In fact, he describes both the destructive power of God's voice and also the regenerative or the creative power of God's voice. In the Hebrew poetry, we see that uh, going back to the beginning uh, of the scriptural canon in Genesis, uh, that it is God speaking into creation and bringing it to life. And perhaps that's what David is referring to here, going back to the Pentateuch and remembering his, his reading or his listening to the story that God brings the creation into being with his voice. And in that passage, of course, we see that God's voice is is manifesting creative power. And yet, throughout um, the history of humankind, we've seen God's destructive power as well. Uh, Human beings tend to think that there's some evil force in the world that causes all suffering and that there's a, a good force, a holy force in the world that brings all the redemption and the positive things, but the Hebrews perceive God as being the author of all things that happen. In the book of Job, it is God who allows uh, Satan, this proponent of evil, uh, to bring suffering into Job's life. But at the end, Job doesn't have a reckoning with Satan for the evil. He has a reckoning with God uh, and looks at God as the author of all of his suffering. And God doesn't completely deny that. Uh, God, though he is not the one who causes the suffering, God takes responsibility for it in a sense. That through his sovereignty, everything we experience, positive and negative, Um, joyful and tragic. All of it extends from whom God is and what His plan is for our lives. And that's something that is hard for most of us to grasp. There is a brand of religious thinking in the world, a very popular brand of religious thinking, even within Christian churches, that God is the author of prosperity, that God is the author of our triumphs, that God brings us promotions and healthy children and happy relationships, and that everything that is negative Is the product of some evil force trying to antagonize our lives or the product of our sinfulness. But David here I think acknowledges that that the God of all creation and the same God who governs each of our lives is a God who brings good and bad out of our lives. God is not the author of evil but suffering is sometimes a tool in his hand. Uh, C.S. Lewis argued years ago that without suffering many of us would never seek God for help, that our stubbornness Our innate selfishness is such that without God's breaking of us and pushing us back to his throne for help, uh, that we would never pursue him, that we would never seek the real good of our lives, which is spiritual wholeness, which is walking with God again the way Adam and Eve walked with God in the Garden of Eden before things shattered with the entrance of sin and rebellion. God's voice is over the waters. God's voice breaks the cedars. God makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. There are flames of fire coming out of his voice. He shakes the wilderness, and yet he also, in a tender way, gives birth to the animals that, uh, that pick themselves up off the ground right after their birth. Uh, and and the, the culmination of this is David saying, as if refrain, we, we all will sing, in his temple all cry, glory. That the earth, in a sense, already acknowledges God's power. The earth does not seek to rebel against God's order. But we as human beings are in a position where we can reject God's order, and many of us do. So David here acknowledges that God's power is terrifying. He, I think, implicitly suggests that even the God who who crushes and destroys parts of creation, that that same God, if he's allowed to reign over our lives, uh, that if he's invited to work in our life, will also sometimes bring into our lives a cycle of destruction and a cycle of rebirth, renewal, refreshing as well. In the book of Ecclesiastes, there's that beautiful passage where it says there's a time to die and a time to be born, that there's a time for war and a time for peace. We cannot expect that out of devotion to God, we will therefore have smooth sailing forever. God makes our paths straight or level. In other words, he gives us guidance on how to live rightly, but he does not guarantee that those who follow him will always live a life of simplicity and easiness a life devoid of, of obstacles, impediments, or frustrations. And so that is really the heart of what real worshipers do. Real worshipers don't look at God as a, as a dispenser of goods. We don't look at, to God as a, as a vendor and we as the consumers. Real worship of God is not a, an exchange or a contract. It's a honest and humble acknowledgement that God is God and we are not. And if worship is devoid of that, then it is not true worship. Worship can be angry. Worship can be frustrated. Worship can even be sad, as it is often when David writes these poems to God. And yet, in all of it, the spirit of humility before God, a spirit of of a desire to follow God hand in hand, to walk with him, to be in his presence, is always there. Even when David vents to God his frustrations with life, God is still God, and David is his humble servant. And so I think we, in trying to sort of bring our spirits in tune with God's spirit, can find in the Psalms uh, very human, very broken and humble expressions of how to deal with tragedy and brokenness in our lives. If you're experiencing loss, a broken relationship, an illness, um, a disappointment in yourself, um, a depression, whatever it is, I think that God offers us first and foremost himself before he offers us deliverance. He brings us to a place of worship, and in that worship, as we acknowledge glory to God. In other words, God is the one who deserves the praise, that God is the one from whom all good things come, as well as all brokenness, and we still give him glory in the midst of that. We acknowledge him and elevate him and celebrate who he is, even in our times of brokenness. I think that out of that, God provides the first and greatest deliverance, which is deliverance of our spirits. Deliverance from the the bondage of trying to make sense of your own life, the bondage of trying to fix every problem in your life, the bondage of trying to grab the reins out of God's hands, and to bring happiness and fulfillment through your own means. For as the Lord Jesus said in uh, Matthew 6, in the Gospel of Matthew, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, meaning God's righteousness, God's kingdom, the things God cares about. And in recognizing those as first in your life, he will add all the other things to you as well. That passage uh, is a passage where Jesus is describing how we are often afraid that we don't have what we need, both physically and spiritually, that we might not have clothes, we might not have food. And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Be a true worshiper. Put Christ's kingdom, God's kingdom first, and God will make sense of the rest. God will deliver in his time and in his way, not in our time and in our ways, But that is the promise of God, to give us first himself, and that is what David sought more than anything else in his life. We see that in his poems. The honesty, brokenness, and humility of a man who sought to follow God, to know God's heart, and just in some way restore the broken relationship with God. And we see that in creation, God's power in creation, in a thunderstorm and a hurricane, as well as in the beauty of of a soft spring afternoon In all those things, we see the power of God, and he reminds us that though it might seem that the world stained with sin has become a chaotic place, that God is still in power, that God is still providing for and watching over the way of the righteous, as David says in Psalm 1. God watches over the way of the righteous. He will bring order to our lives, first spiritually, and in many cases, uh, to the physical needs that we are faced with every day. So, I hope this brief description of Psalm 29 was helpful to you. I encourage you to go back and read it. And if you have questions for me or want to share your thoughts about the Psalm, feel free to do so on Twitter at Psalm Sketches. Uh, so good to spend a little bit of time with you. And uh, I hope this was an encouragement. Take care.